welcome to Say More on That, a podcast for academics to talk about their policy-relevant research. I'm here today with Dr. Anwar Mahajni, who's an assistant professor of political science at Stonehill College. Her research focuses on feminist international relations and security studies, democratization, governance and institutions, civil society and activism, political Islam, the Middle East, gender politics, social movements, and regime change. Her work has been featured in the International Feminist Journal of Politics, Political Research Quarterly, Religion and Politics, Foreign Policy Magazine, The Conversation, The Times of Israel, Heretz, Middle East Eye, Plus 972 Magazine, Quartz, The Defense Post, The Jerusalem Post, and the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. Welcome. We're so, so happy to have you here, Anwar. Thanks for having me. So, first of all, let's get to know you as a person a little bit better now. So, what book are you reading? I'm actually currently reading Mercy by Brian Stevenson. Uh, it's a memoir. He talked about his career uh, as a lawyer, defending, you know, uh, clients in the South, poor clients in the South, uh, mainly, you know, people of color. Um, so it's a fascinating, it's a fascinating intro for me as a foreigner, as, as a foreigner who didn't, who is not originally from the U.S. to kind of learn more about this the U.S. and, you know, racial inequalities exist. Um, so it's a, it's an interesting read. I highly recommend it. Right. I've heard incredible things about that book, Just Mercy, um, and it's so relevant. So what one thing are you just unreasonably particular about? Uh, Middle Eastern food. <laughs> <laughs> Where I get it from. Also, I don't eat anything like hummus that is flavored with chocolate or any of that. This is just not okay. Okay. Uh, I, I will respect that. <laughs> I have a question. Are you one of the sort of purists who won't eat even like basic Sabra hummus? Uh, so out of ideological reasons, I mean, I am Palestinian with Israeli citizenship. And I know that even in Israel, the best hummus comes from Arab towns. So I feel like, out of principle, I think the companies that need to benefit from that should be companies run by Arab owners. Okay. I mean, uh, are there particular hummus brands that you would officially endorse here today on this podcast? <laughs> not really. Not in the U.S. <laughs> um, so our, our last getting to know you question, uh, how do you take your coffee? Um, so I'm like espresso, specifically blonde espresso by Starbucks, and I'm very particular about the drink I get from Starbucks. It has to be a blonde flat white with soy milk. Like that's every day. Um, so I drop my kid off at daycare, drive to Starbucks, and that's what I get. <laughs> uh, that's fair. As as a coffee snob, I will say Starbucks is the the refrigerated hummus container of coffee. So we can't all be purists and all things. <laughs> So let's chat a little bit about your research. You're doing some really fascinating work about how international humanitarian law applies to cyberspace, with a particular focus on developments in Israeli cybersecurity. Can you first explain why international humanitarian law is a relevant framework for understanding cyber warfare and cybersecurity? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, cybersecurity is becoming more and more prominent in public discourse, um, you know, with the continuous uh, hacks from Russia and other entities. Um, and now the narrative comes from military uh, personnel, 
right, from military institutions, from security institutions, should we run to attacks? What kind of offensive approaches should we take to cyber realm if we get attacked? But less has been talked about on how we should apply human rights in the cyber realm, right? How should we uh, apply ethical concerns in the cyber realm? And since cyberspace is a um, is a space that is heavily populated by citizens, um, these questions are important to answer, right? And I'm personally worried that if the discourse and the narrative keeps being pushed by uh, like about what we should do in the cyber realm, how should we control it, what type of relations we should uh, implement there, continues to be pushed for by security institutions, and we risk, you know, undermining uh, civilian rights. Now, in national humanitarian law, specifically in the case that I'm looking at in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, is important because it's one of the you know, kind of frameworks, international frameworks, that addresses... Um, you know, the conduct of war, the protection of civilians during war. And then we need to define what war is, of course, what type of attacks consti constitute a war that you can uh, kind of justify an attack back. But then um, the other thing that why this is relevant to the Israeli-Palestinian case specifically is because Israel is considered an occupying power in uh, the West Bank and Gaza, and they have legal obligations towards the Palestinians, right? But they also could abuse the status and narrative of security in order to uh, infringe on certain rights for Palestinians and plenty of rights for Palestinians. Um, so that's why I think it's important to use that as a framework. Another thing is international humanitarian law actually doesn't have special protections for data privacy, right? Data privacy, we saw the EU kind of implementing more laws and regulations, but when it comes to international humanitarian law conflict um, settings, we don't really have concrete, clear regulations to protect data privacy. International law does address, uh, you know, private property, but data privacy hasn't been addressed. And I think that's something that we need to pay attention to. And it's important for us to kind of contemplate and think about in order to kind of create framework that does uh, pay attention to data privacy and the way, um, you know, data could weaponized in the context of war to intimidate civilians and infringe on their rights. That's so fascinating. And your, your response brought up this issue of cyber colonialism uh, and mm -hmm. Israel as an occupying force in Palestine. So I was wondering how you could say a bit more about how cyber colonialism impacts everyday life uh, in Palestine. Mm -hmm. So, oh, it's, it's fascinating to look at it. And I am now talking to a few activists on the ground in the Palestinian territories in Gaza who are um, dealing with these issues. So Israel pretty much controls what comes in and out of Gaza, and then it regulates and controls what comes in and out of the West Bank as well. Uh, internet access in the Palestinian territories was illegal until 1993 when the Oslo Accords uh, you know, were finalized. Um, however, the Accords kind of stipulated that Israel would control all frequencies and determine where Palestinians could build new infrastructure, now with the uh, separation wall 
uh, Israel also created zones where Palestinians can't get connection there. So we always forget that the internet and the cyberspace has a physical element to it, right? The cables, the networks, the uh, the pro like where we uh, keep the uh, processors um, there. So Israel has control over the physical infrastructure, what comes in and out, what can be built. Um, and that uh, prevents Palestinians from gaining, you know, from having freedom over access of their connection. Uh, that's in itself problematic. Now, another level that comes with it is that Palestinians are isolated from each other and isolated from the world. Uh, the internet gave them the base to organize it. It created, and we have that in spring in a similar fact, but in the in Palestinian territories, the internet becomes more uh, prominent as a site for organizing, like cyber activism, we call it, because of the lack of resources that they have on the ground. Because Palestinians are, you know, they are in two separate locations uh, side of the Palestinian territories in Gaza and the West Bank. And also, um, there's the diaspora that lives um, around the world. So it connected all of them together. Now, that's in theory great, right? However, that means that since Israel controls the infrastructure for the internet, they can collect as much data as they want. And that creates a new platform for surveillance and targeting activists and people uh, who post something that, let's say, you label the word uh, martyr, right? And if you find a search history of somebody who typed martyr or posted a status that had martyr in it so there are precautions to that and that's the other element of how you know israel kind of controls infrastructure and collects data uh, of civilians without their consent uh, there were instances and reports on unit 8200 which is the unit in the idf that kind of you know every big uh, israeli tech firm or tech uh, ceo comes from that unit um, that unit gathers intelligence, and there are reports that the unit uses the information that they get. So let's say there's a Palestinian, and they found out he's gay, right? And they know the community is not okay with that. So they use that information to blackmail that person uh, in order to kind of, let's say, um, collaborate with Israel on things or, like, uh, give them information. Ugh in itself is kind of you see the ultimate abuse of power when it comes to control over uh the the internet infrastructure and access to the cyber realm yeah that's so fascinating about how it both affects the ability to organize and the sanctity of, of people's data something that has become so main mundane for all of us just you know merely using the internet which has now you know, become all the more important during this pandemic where we're forced to work from home. Yeah. So m moving to some of the policy implications of this work, you allude to how this model of digital colonialism may spread elsewhere globally. I'm curious where else you see this manifesting. What other countries are developing digital colonization strategies? Mm -hmm. So, I mean, it goes back, we need to define what like cyber colonialism or digital colonialism mean um, and we go back to the definition of colonialism right colonialism uh, refers to like it had an economic implication to it where uh, a western power comes and kind of takes advantage of resources um, without giving any 
maximize their profit on the expense of the uh, indigenous population without the indigenous population gaining any uh, benefit out of that. Um, and we see that actually materializing everywhere around the world, right? Who has access to data? Who, who runs social media websites? Um, who uh, kind of provides you, let's say, with 5G networks, right? They're all, it's, it's very political. Who provides what? And then who provides you with the services gets access to your information? Uh, and data is one of the most valuable assets that we do have right now right, as individuals. But we constantly give away our to our data because we live in a system where we can we can't actually function offline right it's an, it's kind of impossible for a lot of people to function online uh, offline so we see especially that abuse happening in you know in, in places say in africa where um you see a lot of companies foreign companies come in and they're abusing data because there are less regulations there, right? The EU, we saw they implemented their own regulations. They're not perfect. And also some African countries started implementing some regulations. So in Kenya, they have um, what they call the general data protection regulation, but it still has loopholes that allow big companies to kind of uh, abuse people's data. So in this context, I'm not talking about an occupation that Israeli companies is, uh, as we all know, as a unique case. Um, and it has its own particularities, but we see that digital colonialism could translate to bigger picture where it's not only state on that state actors, uh, it could be also companies abusing data, um, the data of kind of individuals and countries without regulations. So that would be one way to view it. Fascinating. So your work articulates the need for international humanitarian law to cover civilian uh, digital data protection uh, and to ensure that civilians have safe access to information technology. Mm -hmm. I'm curious, what might this look like in practice? What policies and reforms are necessary to get us to that point? Mm -hmm. So international humanitarian law um, does cover privacy, but it's not data privacy that is covered, right? And I think one of the arguments that I'm trying to um, kind of unpack is what happens if we include data privacy as an element of privacy in international humanitarian law, right? Would that be the easiest approach to kind of incorporate data privacy in our understanding of international humanitarian law and how that should be applied? Um, so that's one of the regulations that I could look at. Um, the other thing I was thinking of also redefining what an attack is, right? So an attack, does it only Traditionally, it constitutes like physical debt, right? But what if we constitute like any uh, abuse of data privacy as an attack? How can that treat international human law? And I, I don't yet have clear answers because the project is still um, its infancy. Uh, and I'd like to talk more ex experts, more activists around, but I think that's where I'm starting to think I'm going. Um, and, you know, considering some of the literature that is out there, uh, but, you know, it, I need more time to kind of um, figure out the best approach there. Uh, this is such a fascinating and absolutely critical project. So thank you so much for all of the work that you're doing on it and for your time here today. Thank you.